Hello and welcome to the IBMS Biopods. I'm Rob. And this is Becca. These Biopods will give you an insight into Congress with exclusive interviews, behind the scenes chit chat, and maybe even a drop of science. So put down your pets, move away from the microscope, and get ready for a Biopod, Biopod deep dive. This episode features two interviews, the first of which Becca was unable to attend. So I'm joined by James. Hello, I'm James. And we talked to Dr. Sarah Pitt about her research with snail mucus and antibiotics. In the second half, we talked to Dr. Rena Richardson about her Congress session entitled, How Clean Is Your Mouth? Dr. Sarah Pitt has also written the cover feature for the December issue of The Biomedical Scientist, so it's a very special month for all those gastropod enthusiasts and mollusca admirers who are IBMS members out there and listening today. On that note, let's slowly slide into this month's biopod with... Dr. Sarah Pitt. Okay, so today we're here with Dr. Sarah Pitt at the University of Brighton. Sarah, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, uh, my name is Dr. Sarah Pitt. I'm working here at the University of Brighton um, as a lecturer. I'm a lecturer in biomedical science practice and also in microbiology. I've worked as a biomedical scientist in microbiology for nearly 30 years now. Oh, brilliant. So in the current issue of The Biomedical Scientist, we're featuring your work on the cover. Uh, so just to jump straight in with that, why snails, Sarah? Well, the, the, um, I have my husband to thank for this, uh, this project. He's an invertebrate biologist at another university. And we were um, talking about what we could offer as undergraduate research project. And he said, oh, you know, there's this thing I've, I'm wondering about antibiotics in snail mucus why don't we look into that and I resisted it for a couple of years actually because I thought well I don't know anything about looking after snails I don't know anything about snails I'm a virologist um, but and he tried it with some of his students and he said he thought that there might be something in it but when um, he explained to me what he was actually doing in the laboratory I said to him oh you're doing that all wrong he was because he's not a micro because I'm the microbiologist in this family, and I'm I you're you're the method you're using. That no wonder it's not working very well. Give it to me, I'll try and sort <laughs> it out. And so I did it with some undergraduate students the following year, which was um, 2013-14, I think. And we thought there might be something happening. So I spent that whole summer just in the lab, just playing about with um, different agars, different ways of pre preparing the mucus and testing against lots and lots of bacteria and eventually found that I could get the method to work but I could only get the mucus to kill one particular species of bacteria and so that's how we started. And how did you go about finding those snails? Uh, were you kind of out in the garden at night, little head torch on? What was, what was your you snail hunting technique? You go out at the right time of day and look in the right sort of places you, you just find lots of snails. It, particularly if it's, if it's been raining they'll all come out but I did find there was quite a lot around the back of my shed. There was a, there was a bit of old um, flooring, I think, that the previous owners of the house had left. And underneath it, I picked it up and I lifted it up and there's tons of snails underneath it. So they all came, into, <laughs> came indoors for a nice life of being warm and secure yeah. and being regularly fed. I'm sure they loved it. And for those listeners like me who don't know a lot about snails... In a typical garden, do you find lots of different types of snails or is there one predominant species? There's one predominant species called the brown garden snail, which is the one that we'll be working on. But um, you do actually get um, 
other smaller ones, the sepia species, which are the they're much tinier and their their shells are um, they're all they're kind of more more coiled and they're more different colours, but and they're smaller. Um, those are the two main ones that we found. Um, but the brown garden snail is the one that we've been concentrating on. We've tried sepia, but we the mucus is because they're small. It's quite difficult to get mucus out yeah. of them, and we didn't find that it worked very well anyway. And has it changed the way you think about snails? I don't think of them as particularly nice or pleasant things. I think of them as things where I'm going to put the bins out and I've accidentally trodden on one and there's a horrible squelch and I wish I'd put my shoes on, but I didn't. How do you think about snails? Yes, as I say, I didn't know anything about snails and was slightly reluctant to get involved with them at the beginning. But now one of the things that you do have to do is you have to handle them. And if you have a snail on your hand... Just wiggle. It's it's delightful. It makes you feel really happy. It just kind of makes you feel the snails, the little antennae come out because they want to see what's going on, and they'll look at you and they'll they'll just carry on walking. You know, they'll it almost looks as though they're coming out to say hello to you, which obviously I know they're not, but they're very comfortable. The ones, particularly the ones we have in the laboratory, are very comfortable being handled, and so they and they actually quite enjoy it. And so and it, but it is really. It really is a delight to have hmm. a, an animal on your hand that's just interacting with you. And in that moment, it's just you and the animal. And there's something quite special about that. So I, I, I've completely changed my mind about snails. And this is possibly a stupid question, but can they, do they have emotions? Do the snails have emotions? Can they show fear and joy? Um, well, they, obviously they can. I don't know whether you'd go as far as saying emotions, but obviously if they're afraid, they will curl up inside their shells hmm. um, and produce the defensive mucus which we're actually interested in mm. so that can be a bit of a problem when trying to collect the mucus because they're not afraid of me so do you have to and try so and scare them, to try and scare them <laughs> what are your scaring techniques poking them with a with a cotton wool bud <laughs> until they get <laughs> they get upset and um talk us through the process of, so you, you poked it with a cotton wool bud it's secreted the slime mm. How, how do you get from that point to potentially having an antibiotic? There seems like a, a massive swathe of things in between. There are a through. lot of things in between. So what we do is we collect that mucus. I, I gather from my research students that actually the latest method is scrape it all off with a scalpel. But before I was trying to harvest it with a plastic pipette and it takes a really long time. I bet. We then um, stick it in the cold room overnight because we found that four degrees was... Um, helpful. We tried various temperatures. We found four degrees works nicely with some uh, glass beads and then in a shaker to kind of try and get the things we're interested in out of all the gloopy bit of the protein because it's very sticky and it's mm. very viscous. And then we then um, diluted in um, uh, phosphate buffered saline and then um, centrifuge it down the next day. And then we can put it through a series of um, filters different with different sizes of the membrane to actually try and get rid of some of the impurities and to try and get 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 down to the individual sort of bands where the proteins might be um and then um then we have that so that's as far as we've got really mm. in terms of making it into an actual antibiotic we just um there's there's a lot more steps that we've got to go to so the recent, more recent, our more recent work, we've actually been able to um, identify three key proteins that we're actually interested in. Um, but what we're trying to do is express them artificially in a in an e in an Escherichia coli vector to try and make lots and lots of the protein. 
outside of all the gloopiness of the mucus. So we can actually start doing things like minimum inhibitory concentrations for that protein and start characterizing the protein um, in more sort of biochemical detail so that it might be so that a pharmaceutical company might actually be interested in it. Mm. I'm sure they're not. I'm sure if we just get them a load of mucus and say, here, get your antibiotic out of <laughs> yeah. that, they're not going to be that keen. But if we say, here's our protein, we, we definitely know it's the thing that's working. And also, if we know, if we can get that protein on its own, we can work out how does it work against the bacteria because that's the thing we don't really know. It seems to specifically work against Pseudomonas aeruginosa, but we don't know why that might be or how it's actually doing that. So we need more information about that. And is this uh, an evolutionary thing that the snail, the snails have kind of developed to protect themselves against something? Well, it does appear to be. There are two really intriguing things that I found out um, kind of what, when in the analysis of, of the results that we've got. The first is that the when I looked at, um, just Googled snail care, I actually found that there's guidance if you're looking after a pet snail, including if you take garden snails in and keep them as pets, Pseudomonas is a particular risk that snail um, care owners are, snail care uh, experts are um, aware of. Mm. So that, I think that's quite interesting. And the other thing that interests me is the fact that Pseudomonas aeruginosa is, a, is an important pathogen in people with cystic fibrosis mm. and it for, performs biofilms in the mucus in the lungs of the people with with cystic fibrosis and obviously it's forming potentially the mucus that of the snails potentially could have a biofilm so they they might want to protect against pseudomonas specifically for for the same sort of reasons and the same in the same sort of way so potentially the answer to your question is yes i think so and is it something that we would find in other creatures that kind of interact with the soil microbiome, like uh, worms, centipedes, uh, um, slugs? Yeah, we think so. We haven't, it's quite diff. We've tried slugs. We've tried looking at slugs. But the trouble with slugs is that um, when, they, when they produce their mucus, because they don't have shells, their protective mechanism is for the mucus to turn really hard almost as soon as it's been produced mm. to kind of encase around the slug as a protective thing. So um, snail mucus is gloopy and viscous, but it's still sort of more or less liquid. Snail mucus goes into a really hard lump, and we have actually not been able to so far find a method that allows us to actually extract the... Um, to make it into a liquid enough form that we can actually extract anything from it and actually do any experiments on it. Mm. We've tried. We've tried difficult, different chemical methods of, of sort of maybe on, 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 on thickening it. But then it turned out that the chemicals, the method that, that my student used this, the method that, was, um, that she found that was advocated, turned out that it had a chemical in it which had antimicrobial properties anyway. Mm. So we couldn't work out whether it was the mucus or it was the chemical that was killing the bacteria, but everything died. So that so we were kind of back to the drawing board on that one. Um, but there is there is research for things like sea slugs and other sorts of other sorts of mollusks mm. where they're looking at the mucus and finding them it might have antimicrobial properties. It's still a it's kind of a new area of research actually really across across the board, but potentially yes. 
Um, you mentioned your students there. How do they feel about the snails? Have you had any that have hated snails? Most of them start tall? off thinking they're a bit creeped out by it, but in the end, up they love end up loving them oh. like I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And do you think that the kind of natural world is a, a bit of an untapped area where we're going to see increasing research into kind of antibiotics with the rise in antimicrobial resistance? I think it could be. I think it could be a, a place that people could could be looking at a little bit more. Um, I think obviously we've found some key antibiotics and then are then what people decided to do was just tweak the chemical structures of the key antibiotics which we know would work. And I think some of the other avenues of research, for example, like um, phage therapy and nat investigating natural remedies um, have sort of been put to one side a little bit because we believed in the in the drugs that we already had. Mm. And quite rightly, they were they were amazing. But now we're starting now that we're resistance is becoming a problem. People are having to be a little bit creative and going back to perhaps things which were thought of 100 years ago and shelved mm. because penicillin was better and more available and worked well and and was that was the thing. But now perhaps we need to go back and have a look at some other. And how, how big a problem do you think antibiotic resistance is? Is that something that is there's, there's a lot of coverage in the media? Is it something that's going to have a tangible impact in our lifetimes? Is it already having a big impact? Or do you think it's something where we'll be able to find more antibiotics over the coming years? It doesn't look very promising at the moment. It doesn't. The World Health Organization does consider it to be a major public health problem. And um, resistance is growing and we where there are now strains of certain species of bacteria that are resistant to every antibiotic that we could possibly use to treat with it. So if you um, if you get infected with that particular strain, then you may well not be able to get the treatment that you need. And there are there's, there's only a few strains of a few species so far, but the fact that we've got any at all mm. is a serious worry, I think. Um, the we could pull it back from the brink, I think, if we start using antibiotics a bit smarter. Um, and so don't take antibiotics if you don't need them, if you've got a viral infection. Don't demand antibiotics from your doctor. Um, also finish your course of antibiotics. People often get halfway through the seven-day course and think, oh, I feel better now. Mm. And then don't, don't finish the full course. And then that allows the bacteria to kind of maybe come back and... Um, regrow and develop resist it encourages the mm. development of resistance so people have got to use them a bit better but still I'm not sure whether I'm not sure whether we'll really get back to how it used to be in the beginning of penicillin where it cured everything is it possible for those uh, resistant strains to die out or once they're here are they are they here for good well if you found something that killed those resistant strains then that genetic line would would die out but the fact that they're resistant most of them are resistant to more than one type of antibiotic is actually quite difficult to find something that would kill that kill that whole line off and also because of the way um, our modern world is those strains have traveled all across the world and so actually you'd have to find a drug that would definitely kill them all dead and definitely find every single isolate of every single version of that strain like in every single country of the world in order to stop it spreading. So it's actually quite difficult to do that, I would think. Oh, definitely. Um, 
But going back to something which will be helpful, your research, what happens next with your research, Sarah? Well, as I say, we've got these three proteins that we're interested in, and I think there are going to be some more as well. We're trying to make it artificially in the lab. It's not working tremendously well, but um, the, ne the other thing I'm going to do um, after Christmas, I hope, I've got some funding for it now, is try and crystallise the protein so we can actually see what it looks like. That might start giving you some clues about how it might work against bacteria as well. And then with some more, I've got a lot of um, uh, clinical isolates now from various sorts of different sorts of patients. And I, can, I want to just test my mucus against all of them and see whether it works against every single type of, so far it seems to work against every single type of Pseudomonas aeruginosa we found, tested it against. If I can get an extensive range of isolates, then, and we can show that it works against most of them, then a drug company might be interested in mm. taking that further um, because obviously that we'll, we'll get to the point where it's the limits of my uh, ability to do yeah. more with it. And what happened, like, how, how do you go from that step where you've got something, you want to give it to a pharmaceutical company? Do you kind of say, we've got this, this is for the good of the world, go and develop it? Do you, how, how does that process work um, and who gives who money? I think if I just did that, <laughs> the university might have something to say yes. about it. <laughs> there are processes and procedures that you would go to by actually, you know, you, there are, it's, um, you, sometimes people patent things for a specific use. So you, you and but you, it's tricky because I haven't invented it. Mm. I've just discovered something that was already there. Yes. But but you can patent things for a specific use, and drug companies are apparently interested in that. And then you, do, the the university has sort of things about intellectual property rights according to the information that you've actually managed to glean in your in your lab research, and so on. So it's it's not there are people who I know I can talk to who I have already talked to within the institution about that sort of procedure. Yeah. It's, um, I'm quite keen to, if it, if it can turn into a new antibiotic, then I'm quite keen to get there as easily and, and as possible. But you, you have to be a little bit careful, so I yeah, get that. Of course. And what type of timescales are we looking at? If everything went incredibly well as well as possible with your research, at what point could the could a new antibiotic be prescribed that's based on your work, do you think? Well, we're looking at five to ten years minimum, I would think. Um, the, it depends on what they anyone wants to do with it. So you can buy uh, face cream in health food shops and, and some uh, sort of cosmetic things, where um, which apparently this cream has got snail mucus in it. But it's just general snail mucus. It's not. They mm. haven't. You, they haven't actually taken out particular elements of the mucus. They've just put whole mucus in there, presumably cleaned it up a little bit, and put it in a cream. So the fact that you can put whole snail mucus in a cream, and that is something that's been through safety testing, and is being sold to people over the counter as a useful thing, suggests to me that we might be able to put our snail mucus protein into a cream because we know that it works against, we know that Pseudomonas is um, a cause of uh, chronic infection in wound infections and we have actually tested our mucus against um, bacteria that have been taken from chronic wound infections so we know it works. So it could potentially be something that you could turn into a cream to put on somebody's wound dressing um, which is a thing that people are 
starting to do anyway. So kind of a more targeted treatment within your actual band, within your actual wound dressing to help clean your um, wound up more quickly. So I don't think it would be too difficult to, to do that. Mm. To go any further and make it into a, a sort of a tablet that you take might take a bit longer because A, you've got to do the formulation from it and then you've got to do all the clinical trials and safety testing. So I'm sort of quite hopeful for the for the wound cream, at least. And snail facials. I remember reading a few mm. years ago in all the newspapers about yes. this new craze at some high-end salons where they put snails on your face, let them have a little wander around on there. Is that beneficial? And why are people doing that? And have you ever been tempted or done it yourself? <laughs> I wouldn't advise that no? because you don't know where the snails have been, really. I mean, what we found <laughs> is that they have lots of bacteria and things. that I mentioned earlier on that we put our mucus through a series of filters to get rid of impurities. If you just put a snail that hasn't, even if it's been in a reasonably clean environment, yeah. it's still got other bacteria and other impurities on the outside of its body which you are potentially exposing your skin to. So I, I wouldn't recommend it. No. So a warning for all listeners at home, do not do not put snails on yourself if you're trying to make yourself better or improve your beauty, I suppose. You can get a f- snail face mask oh, can you? and things like that. that they'd be yeah. okay. If it's being kind of prepared into yeah. a, some kind of potion, fine. But I wouldn't but put don't a, don't get a live snail on, put it on yourself. No, I okay. wouldn't recommend that. No. And finally, before I pass you over to James for the quickfire round, have you ever eaten snails and would you ever be willing to now after your research? No, I've never eaten them. I've never really fancied it. And now I definitely wouldn't. As I've got older, I'm becoming increasingly more and more vegetarian. And there's very there's very little meat that I'll actually eat. Every time I fall in love with a certain animal, then then I won't eat the meat of said animal. Yeah. So uh, definitely snails will definitely be off the menu. Definitely off the menu. Brilliant. I'm going to pass you over to James for the quick fire round. Brilliant insight, thank you. Okay, Sarah, this is your quick fire round. Are you ready? What's your favourite pathogen? Oh, that's easy. Dengue virus. What's your favourite piece of lab equipment? Um, I'd say a microscope because it's quite versatile. You can use it for lots of different things. What was your favourite thing about Congress? Oh, meeting people there are people i only ever see at congress but i always bump into them at congress and i love that okay describe your job in just three words varied stimulating and tiring what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given i've been given lots of very good advice by lots of brilliant people along the way but i think the one that crops up quite often is believe in yourself the fact that people have to keep saying it to me suggests perhaps I'm not taking the advice as I should be. <laughs> and lastly, who's your science hero? Well, the people who trained me in, uh, in my very first job as a biomedical scientist are all really amazing people and they are my, they're people I admire and respect. But I'd say as a scientist, as a, as a microbiologist, I'd have to say Louis Pasteur. Brilliant stuff, thank you. And I shall pass you back to Rob now for your overrated underrated and correctly rated section thank you very much so sarah team building exercises are they overrated underrated or correctly rated i think they're overrated i don't think they necessarily achieve what they're set out to achieve at all have you been involved in many or have you been lucky not, enough not to avoid very them? many but the ones i've been in haven't really helped the team to be built better 
uh, lab coats, overrated, underrated, or correctly rated? Well, I'd like to start, I'd hope that they were correctly rated, but actually I suspect probably they're underrated, but they're a really, really important part of, of safety. And as a microbiologist, I'm very keen on people wearing their lab coats, wearing them done up properly, and using them effectively. And so probably, they're probably underrated. Any renegade students that you have to tell off for incorrectly wearing a lab coat? Oh yes, all the time. They don't as they come into my class. I'm always telling them, "Do your lab coat up properly before you walk through the laboratory." That's one of my. They could probably put that on a um, a tape and just press the button. Probably <laughs> <laughs> <Nice. laughs> lab class. Yes. Um, Socialising with colleagues. I think that's underrated. I think people have very much more disparate lives than they used to have. And in um, the university, people are doing different different things. Here in my department, we're in different bits of, a, of different buildings, actually. We don't see each other very much. But then everyone sort of goes home to their families. And in diagnostic labs now, everyone's doing different shifts. So we don't really see each other. But And the effort to get together and to go out for a drink on a Friday afternoon for example, or a meal, is sort of, it's it's harder to get everybody together because we're not all together at the, in the, to go, oh, let's, shall we just go for lunch? Mm. And so um, it's, but it's really important that you do do that, just sort of having, just getting to know each other and just having a chat about, even problems at work can sometimes be solved over a sandwich, but I so it's definitely underrated because we just don't make the effort to do it as much as we should do. Good answer. And birthday cards and leaving cards and the little messages that you have to leave in them for colleagues. What about those? Overrated, <laughs> underrated or correctly rated? But colleagues, I think they're overrated because it's very difficult to think of something that you really want to say to them. Hopefully, whatever it is you really want to say to them, you've said it to them. And so in the card, you're just, you've only got a little bit of space. Everyone else is going to read it. So you probably just say, you know, good luck, best wishes, keep yeah. in touch. Have you got a go-to message, your typical one? Where it's like, I know this person a little bit, not great. This is my message. Uh, well, good luck for the future and best wishes. Yeah. Nice. Um, social media in the workplace and the kind of the use of social media to promote the work. I'm not really, I don't really use social media that much. I look on other people's social media pages, but I don't have one. Um, so I, I think probably underrated. I think it probably is a, a good way of getting your message out to a lot of people. But I think perhaps those of us who should be doing the messaging haven't really caught up with the, with the fact that it's so widely accessed by mm. people and not just... Um, the people that you you know about or within your profession but in the wider the wider world as well lots of people are on twitter for example or instagram or facebook you can get a message to a lot of people that way and i i'm only just catching up with that myself so probably underrated underrated and the final one night shifts overrated underrated or correctly rated um well it's a long time since i've done a night shift um unless it's one i've unless it's a self-imposed one because I'm kind of working late in the lab um, in the today's diagnostic service they are really important way of keeping the service running um, it's a requirement for many labs to actually have a night shift so um, I suppose they're probably correctly rated in the sense that everybody knows we have to do them but nobody really hardly any some people like night shifts but mostly people don't like them 
Um, and so we know they have to be done, but we don't really like them, which is correct rating, really. And if you're working back in diagnostics now, how do you think you would get on with night shifts? Um, I'm a morning morning person, so I don't think I'd get on with them terribly well. Really. Not for you? Not for me. Brilliant. Sarah, thank you so much for your time. It's really thank appreciated. You. Thank you. So thanks to Dr. Sarah Pitt. Now on to our next interviewee, Dr. Rena Richardson. So we're welcoming Rena Richardson with us today. Um, Rena, welcome to the IBMS Biopod. Thank you for having you. us. And um, would you like to just give us our listeners a, a bit of an introduction about what you are, what you do, your job title? So um, I'm a, a medical mycologist working for the Manchester University NHS Foundation Trust, but I'm also um, a senior lecturer in infectious diseases for the University of Manchester. Um, I'm lead for the infectious diseases team, and um, I do quite a lot of research, mainly on fungi, but also um, other things. Um, so tell us a bit about your background, Rena, because it's, it's quite unusual, um, and your kind of your education and your, your kind of path into the role that you've got now. So, um, yeah, if you like to study a lot and do a lot of exams, you do what I've done. So um, my first degree was dentistry, and that's why the topic of today was the link of, of basically dental health and oral infections and impact on general health. Um, um, I moved on from dentistry, um, did a PhD in immunology, and then uh, started training in uh, infectious diseases, microbiology and infectious diseases, and that's my current role. And in today's talk, you were talking about the, the microflora, oral microflora. Can, can you explain a bit about what that is? Because I'm not sure how many of our listeners will know. Well, it's the normal bugs that live in your mouth um, that um, consist of bacteria, fungi, viruses, not that many parasites, but possibly those as well. So it's the mixture of them that mouth is their home. And how many are there? How many, if we say, looking at bacteria, how many types of bacteria would there be in the typical person's mouth? Well, we normally say it's about five to 600 species in general have been cultured in human mouth. Molecular methods maybe find 10, 10 uh, times that. Uh, but in an, one individual, it's a couple of hundred species. And, um, and in one corner of each specific area in the mouth like the gingival pocket or the tongue surface or the cheek surface um, it's only maybe less than 100 species. Uh, so, so are they very localized then you would get a specific bacteria on the tongue another one at the... Yes they are because they they have different growth requirements and and those areas are very different you know they the on the tongue they have to tolerate being brushed and touched all the time, whereas in the gingival pocket, they can just hide and sit quietly. Um, nothing is going to touch them unless you <laughs> use your toothpick and floss and, and so forth. Yeah. And um, I think in your talk, you mentioned that you get some sociable bacteria and some unsociable bacteria, which I, d I didn't know about. Can you explain the difference between those? So, yeah, some bacteria are found far more in the dental oral biofilms. And biofilm is a social community of bacteria uh, where they share responsibilities and almost work as a multicellular organism. Biofilm is a lifestyle between unicellular microorganisms and multicellular organisms. And so some bacteria and fungi uh, definitely prefer the social lifestyle and they live in biofilms, whereas others are 
less sociable and they like to hang around and um, on their own and disseminate and are free agents more. <laughs> and are, are these, are they all, are they good? Are they bad? Like, What's the percentage of good to bad bacteria, if we can class it that way? Impossible to say. So um, the mixture of healthy oral cavity, um, the mixture of bacteria and healthy oral cavity is 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 varied between individuals and it is vast. Uh, there are some species that are associated with dental infections and it's more the opportunity how the conditions change for for them to take over rather than that the bugs wouldn't be there. There's a, all the most of the pathogens that we find in dental disease and infection actually are present in the healthy mouth as well. They just find the opportunity to take over and, and the the situation or the circumstances are favorable for mm. them to overgrow. And, and does the population change according to kind of time of day and, and what you've done? Like, so I've just got up in the morning, brushed my teeth. Am I going to have less bacteria and fungi in my mouth then than I will three hours later after I've just eaten a snack? Yes, environmental things do affect. And we know that the microbiome of people who eat. So there are lots of natural um, antimicrobials that we, we are exposed to. Cinnamon, some some spices, uh, garlic, they are antimicrobial. So if you eat a sort of um, Indian curry kind of diet, your microflora is different from, you know, a toast and jam diet. Um, obviously, any other thing that um, we know that the hospital environment radically changes what, what bacteria you can find in the mouth. Uh, is that partially the antibiotic pressure on your on, in hospital ICU or is it just that you may be with your mouth open there with, being intubated, intubated with the tube in your throat and the dry environment then changes everything. Mm. Combinations of things. Yeah. So, so if there was going to be an ideal diet, I'm not saying, obviously the ideal diet for you to have the right kind of bacteria in your mouth versus a healthy lifestyle probably doesn't quite add up. But what would be the best things you could possibly eat if you were just focusing on, I want to keep my mouth really healthy and have the right kind of bacteria? If for the healthy mouth, the key is regular, thorough oral hygiene once daily. I thought you were going to say just have a curry all the time. No, no, sorry, sorry. It's, <laughs> it's the boring old, it's like hand hygiene, hospital infection control. It's the same thing. Infection control mm. in the mouth is all about oral hygiene. So proper brushing and flossing twice a day is the cornerstone of everything. Mouthwashes are not needed. Often mouthwashes have um, all sorts of um, active ingredients that are only active against part of the oral flora and they can distort the balance between different members of the flora, which is generally not the, a good idea. So they, they can be actively unhealthy. Yes. Mouthwashes, and yeah. for example, promote thrush in the oral cavity yeah. if they kill everything except for the, the yeasts. Hmm. Um, so besides that, um, about what's the healthy diet, um, it really doesn't matter as long as you have three to four hours between your meals. Three to, well, why three to four hours between meals? Because that's the time it takes for the oral cavity to recover from the previous meal. Yeah. So it's saliva neutralizes, saliva repairs the, the, the um, uh, damage that the bacteria do on your teeth when they start producing acids, when they get sugars. Mm. Um, and um, they don't need purified sugar to produce acids. They are older than humans, so they, they live on... Um, um, fructose and lactose and all those yeah. things. So um, 
yeah, so any any normal meal with some calories in it is good enough for your oral bacteria. And for a couple of hours, they do produce all sorts of things that will cause damage. But another couple of hours, it'll the mouth and the saliva will fix itself. And if I had a snack in between two meals, so I've had, mm. I've had my lunch, it's four o'clock, I fancy a snack, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to have my dinner at six. Does the snack, should I avoid the snack? Oh, definitely. Because yeah. that is the dip back to your your the bad state yeah. the erosive state of of your yeah mouth what about just like a chocolate one chocolate oh. <laughs> that's okay right nope not even not- it, the, the smallest amount it's it's quite the the smallest amount of any additional energy for the bugs is it triggers it mm. so it's said that if you have a proper dollop of milk in your tea that's enough yeah that's enough okay but milk with no sugar, no no milk, um, uh, tea with no sugar or milk or anything, that doesn't trigger normally. Yeah. Uh, that sort of, or sugar-free drinks or water, yeah. obviously. And um, in your talk, you mentioned that uh, fungi in the mouth, I think people might be surprised to, to know they've got that. How, how does that happen? It's just normal things. So uh, there are both yeasts and, and molds, uh, filamentous fungi in the mouth. Yeasts are normally from your own colonization. We all carry yeast. Uh, some of them are from diet, baker's yeast. Um, um, many cheeses are produced with with fungi. Um, you know, blue cheese is blue because of blue mold mm. um, and, and so forth. So um, microbes are used in f- food production. So we get it from there. Um, Molds, on the other hand, um, disseminate as, as normal um, by producing uh, fungal spores, and we inhale those spores whenever we are outside in the autumn, walking in amongst the leaves. Mm. That lifts up, um, yeah, mold spores that that eat the debris. Yeah, and they just stay in your mouth once they're there. Who knows? Yeah. There are very few studies following up mm. the consistency of that, and and um, yeast. Yes, those those fungi that are your colonizers definitely they hang around and they are very sort of permanent colonization. Mm. But um, the um, 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 but molds, um, who knows? Yeah, and um, with, with the bacteria in your mouth, can they do, do things move from your mouth into your bloodstream? And how does that process work? Sorry, sorry, we're just recording something. Where are you? Um, let's, so, what was my question? <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, how do? Oh, I'll, I'll say it again. Yeah. Um, so, how do? Bacteria make their way fr- from your mouth. I understand they can get into your bloodstream. Is that right? They can do so, and they do, and and it's very common. So um, that's why the immune system is kept on uh, kept alert all the time. Um, so when you eat anything, chew something, you you clean your teeth or or uh, bite your tongue or lip. Uh, there is always a portal of entry for few of few bacteria or fungi into your bloodstream, uh, but the immune system clears it. It's not a problem. Yeah. Um, the, it becomes a problem if the amount of bacteria getting into your bloodstream uh, is bigger than what the tolerance of, or capacity of your immune system is. And then you can start getting sp- uh, spread of infection, disseminated infection. Yeah. 
And leading on to a final question from this section, I think you mentioned that bad mouth hygiene can potentially be fatal. Am I, am I over-exaggerating that? Possibly. <laughs> yes, uh, it can be. Um, um, so it's a bad combination to have, uh, you know, pus oozing pockets and, um, and then potentially something happens in the mouth. You get a massive amount of bugs in your bloodstream. And that can lead to um, endocarditis infection of your your heart, um, or it can go to your brain and and so forth. So there are numerous cases like that. It's rare, but it's more common in patients who have some underlying conditions. So if you have if you're treated with immunosuppressants, like for rheumatoid diseases, or you're undergoing cancer therapies or anything like that, when your immune system is less capable of managing those transient uh, bacterial exposures, um, obviously, then your oral hygiene should be super uh, effective and good. Mm. So what, one more final question, actually, just so we don't end on too much of a depressing note before we move on to the quick fire. Um, what should people's ideal kind of brushing routine be? Just twice a day, after every meal, how long, and have you got a favorite type of toothpaste? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so... Um, so we worry about the acid production by the bacteria when they get any any energy. The acid production starts when you eat. So the, the best way to reduce the risk for acid production is to clean your mouth before you eat, because then the number of bacteria capable of producing acid is minimized. And the acid attack, or whatever you want to call it, is sort of slightly controlled. Um, Brushing immediately after meal, on the other hand, is a bad idea because that's when the tooth surface is at its softest because the acid have etched the surface soft and the saliva hasn't repaired it yet back to its strength. And then you can, if you brush, then you just basically uh, file the tooth surface off and it will never recover. Yeah. Toothpaste, whatever. As long as it has fluorides in it, I yeah. don't mind. Brilliant. So I'm going to pass you over to Becca sure. for the quick fire round. Excellent. So these are just um, quite light-hearted questions. Um, so we'll kick off with what is your favourite microbe? Candida albicans. Why? It is so versatile. It's a. It's a. It's a really interesting. Um, it can cause. It can colonise you. It, you can carry it, and then with multiple things happening in your body, it all in the sun wakes up and causes disease. It's. It reacts to your hormonal balance. Vaginal thrush uh, is estrogen driven. Um, it reacts to immunosuppressants. It. it you know, the, it's just fascinating. That gets, um, it's that scary. <laughs> Excellent. Um, can you describe your job in three words? Uh, challenging, really exciting, and in some ways satisfying. Oh, I see it. Job satisfaction. Excellent. Yeah. Um, do you have a science hero? What do you mean by that? So like Sci your nah. favourite scientist? Uh, hmm. Oh, no. Mm. You can always say Einstein, but um, I liked his hairstyle. <laughs> That's a good enough answer for me. <laughs> um, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Uh, 
no, no. I think it it has to. Uh, this is a bit silly, but it has to do that. I'm quite sort of um, active when we go to conferences. I'm, mm-hmm. I want to be involved, and I I ask questions, and I talk. You know, a uh, sociable person. And um, one um, supervisor told me once that, uh, Rina, you don't have to stand up all the time. <laughs> so that's probably a metaphor for your life as well. We sit yeah. down for a minute. <laughs> I have a calm down since. Yes, good. Um, do you have a favourite piece of lab equipment? Microscope. You're not the first one to say that, actually. Excellent. Mm. Um, and finally, what is your favourite thing about Congress? The mix of people and specialties and, um, yeah, just uh, the mix. Socialising and networking, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, but also topics and, and too often we go to microbiology meeting or clinical chemistry meeting, but now you can pop into slightly outside your mm. core topic and see what's going on on the other side. Yeah, that must be nice, actually, to mm. see what else other scientists are doing. Mm. Excellent. Thank you. I'm going to pass you back over to Rob for our final feature. Okay, so this is overrated, underrated, correctly rated. And the first one is team building exercises. Are they overrated, underrated or correctly rated? I think they're correctly rated, generally. You think people rate them well? Um. It depends who does them and how you do them. But if they're done well professionally, not sort of ad hoc, um, you know, within teams, somebody read a book kind of thing, but properly professionally done, I, I found them, I've enjoyed them yeah. and as a, as a on the receiving end and I think they are good, yeah. Uh, lab coats. Mm. <laughs> that, was a, that was a telling noise. Oh, that's a tricky one. Um, I think there again, they are appropriately probably in balance. They are fine. Some ways a bit OTT for some things to walk, step one meter into the lab. You have to mm. wear a lab coat and you only are talking and asking a question and walking out. Sometimes a bit frustrating. Um, and is that sort of um, playing around with the coat, um, creating, you know, shedding of everything that is on the dirty coat? Uh, is that safer than not disturbing yeah. the air and the bugs. <laughs> um, yeah. But on the other hand, um, yeah, I think it's in the past people just did bench work, basically, yeah. wearing nothing. I'm, I'm not pro, pro that. So. Yeah. Um, Socialising with colleagues. I think it's equally um, depends who, who, uh, how you do it. But in my own life, I think it's sort of in balance. Um, is it overrated generally? Um, no. Underrated? No. It has its sides. You have to have life outside work, of course. Mm. It can't be your only social circle. But um, um, on the other hand, work is an important part of your life and, and you have to be able to talk about your work um, with people who understand what you're talking about. So most of us are not married to somebody who works equally in your lab. So um, you can't, who, who else would listen? Yeah. Um, and writing messages in birthday and leaving cards for colleagues, overrated, underrated or correctly rated? I think it's correctly rated. I've had, I've changed jobs in my life and, and 
I do keep those cards and I, mm. I find it um, interesting to think, not necessarily the wording of the messages, but it's just uh, nice to go back and see, oh, yes, that was the team I worked with. And uh, Have you got a go-to message for if you don't know the person very well, but you feel like you're going to sign it? <laughs> no. All the best, Arena. A little kiss on the end? Or? <laughs> um, I often, um, well, my role is to be the lead for the service, so I often, I... I uh, and for being a team player and and um, uh, contribution to the yeah the whole service and oh social media at the workplace. Well, I do clinical work as well, and I think that's just not flatly doable. It yeah. doesn't go together. So you're you're not taking pictures in clinic and saying exciting patients today. <laughs> um, so uh, no. Um, in the labs, it can be, it depends a little bit what, what we're doing. I, if you're talking about uh, private things and... and I, I suppose promoting what is happening in the lab through social media when people kind of, you know. Uh, I think it's not too bad. Um, I think uh, otherwise we all live in our little bubbles. And I, I think um, sharing what you do is probably a better part of social media rather than what your new hairstyle is. Mm. So some professional social media actually is more into my liking. Yeah, okay. And finally, night shifts, overrated, underrated, or correctly rated? I think they're overrated, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> Have you had to do night shifts yourself? Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. I don't do at the moment, but um, in the past, of course, yeah. And okay, um, got of course, as a clinician, somebody has to cover the wards in the night, and and of course, you know that that's that's different. But for laboratory people, twenty four seven services, I'm not sure we actually know what we're doing with that. Uh, there's quite a lot of lack of understanding that you have to basically increase your workforce by one third to be able to do it. Um, and do we really need that? And do we, are we, and the impact on quality of life, um, family life and everything else, is that the right balance? Um, so I think the benefits are probably overvalued in contrast to the cost on quality of life. Yeah, brilliant. Rina, that is everything. Thank you so much no for worries. joining us and thank you for your time. Sure. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. And don't forget, this can be used for your CPD. See you next month for another Biopod. This is Becca. And Rob. Signing, signing off. off. Bye. Bye.